There is an old saying along the lines of "Some people only hate you because of the way other people love you." That's the thing about jealousy. It stems from someone having something that someone else desperately wishes they had, or from the desire to keep someone or something all to oneself. Jealousy, as many of you know, can bring people to do crazy things. But just how far would jealousy drive someone to feel that they too could have everything? What is up, Ewu crew? Today we will be covering the twisted case of Rachel Barber and see just how jealousy drove someone to murder. This is the case of a missing teenage girl, an intricate series of clues, one fateful phone call, and envy so strong it led someone to kill. If you enjoy true crime, mysteries, and true stories. Be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get into it. Fifteen-year-old Rachel Barber had absolutely everything. Rachel was a tall, toned, elegant Australian dancer whose elfin features and emerald green eyes mesmerized every person who was lucky enough to become acquainted with her. As she was the eldest of three children, her parents, Michael and Elizabeth, often thought of Rachel as a budding role model for her two younger sisters. The only thing in the world that Rachel loved as much as her family was dancing. As a child, she had taken ballet classes at the Melbourne Dance Academy after having begged her parents to enroll her. From Rachel's first few proper dance lessons, it had been exceptionally clear to Michael and Elizabeth Barber that Rachel's talent exceeded everyone's expectations. Rachel's household had been full to the brim with creative minds who understood and respected the creative process. So, when her parents found that Rachel desperately wanted to continue her dance practice at home, they went so far as to rip up the carpet in her childhood bedroom. With the old hardwood floors exposed, Michael and Elizabeth developed a small-scale personal dance studio for their eldest daughter to embrace her passion. As Rachel got older and her dancing skills continued to develop, it was evident that she was in need of new opportunities. Though Rachel's dance skills as a young teen were unmatched, she never had much of a drive for formal education. Rachel feared failure, like many other artists. More than that, she feared her potential being halted for the sake of her studies. In this regard, it came as no surprise to her parents when Rachel begged them to take her out of conventional high school and allow her to attend a local dance academy called Dance Factory instead. Michael and Elizabeth could not deny their daughter's inherent talent and knew all too well that she possessed the potential for a career on stage and in front of a camera. So they allowed Rachel to follow her dreams by agreeing to send her to the dance factory. Rachel's life consisted of a relatively busy schedule during the week: wake up, get ready for school, have one of her parents drop her off at the local tramway, take the tram into a nearby neighborhood where one of her friends lived, meet up with her friend group, and head off to school. After school, she would walk back to the tramway with her friends and her boyfriend Manny. Before meeting up with her parents in the same location as in the morning, for all intents and purposes, Rachel's life was perfect. But you know what they say: sooner or later, 
All good things must come to an end. The morning of March 1st, 1999 was like any other for the Barber family. Yet the events that were about to unfold would irrevocably change their lives forever. Rachel woke up to her alarm and prepared for school. As a bit of a perfectionist, she dressed in the outfit she had picked out the night before. A pair of black pants, a blue top, her favorite jazz shoes, jewelry, and her backpack. She grabbed some breakfast and headed out the door with her father. Rachel had never been outwardly confident in using public transport, as she had always been a timid individual outside of the dance studio or stage. In fact, Rachel's dad would drive her all the way to the tram station before school most days so that Rachel wouldn't have to take the bus there by herself. That was the case on that fateful morning of March 1st. Michael dropped Rachel off at the tram station around 9.30 in the morning and reminded her to meet him at the same location around 6.15 that evening when he would be off work and ready to pick her up. Rachel gave her father a quick hug and told him to have a nice day before parting ways with him. Perhaps if Michael had known that would be the last time he ever hugged his daughter, he would have held on a little tighter. Or perhaps he would have never let her go in the first place. But sadly, we never know when life-changing events will occur, just as Michael had no idea the fate that would take his daughter. Rachel took the tram to Richmond, a nearby town where one of her friends from Dance Factory lived. There, she met up with her talented group of school friends and her love-struck boyfriend, Manny. Not long after Rachel transferred to the Dance Factory, she became acquainted with Manny, another dance student whose charm and wit leveled her own. The two had been almost immediately enthralled with one another and quickly found themselves falling in love. Their fellow classmates had even begun referring to the teenage couple as Romeo and Juliet. Though their love was not unrequited nor forbidden, it was nonetheless Shakespearean in the sense that its beauty and promise was cut short by tragedy. During their walk to school, Rachel excitedly explained to her friends that she was going to make a lot of money later that night. When her friends urged her to tell them more, Rachel simply asserted that she couldn't tell them exactly how, but that her pockets would be sufficiently filled by the next day. Rachel was beautiful. That was obvious to anyone who knew of her. So her friends innocently assumed that her secretive job that evening had something to do with modeling. During their assigned lunch break from school, Rachel and Manny walked a few blocks away from the dance factory to a nearby shopping center called Swan Street. There, they grabbed a bite to eat, and Rachel stopped inside one shop in particular to show Manny a pair of shoes that she had been eyeing for months. Manny looked closely at the gorgeous blue platform shoes. She had been eyeing them for as long as he could remember, but they had always been just a bit out of her budget. Yet, Rachel asked the shop attendant to put the blue platform shoes on hold for her and explained that she would come back the next day to pay for them. It was evident to Manny that Rachel's plans for the evening would leave her with a decent amount of money, but still, he wanted to know what the big secret was. If it was safe, then why couldn't she tell him anything about it? He asked her again what exactly she was going to be doing, Instead, she simply told Manny that she would be meeting up with an old friend that night who had managed to get her a job 
and it was supposed to remain a secret. Rachel explained that the work was harmless, and she would be making a bunch of money and even getting to take home some free clothes. Whatever excitement Rachel had been feeling that moment had completely clouded her judgment of the situation. Although Manny continued to express his curiosity and concern, Rachel decided to keep the secret. What she couldn't have known at the time was that secrets can often turn out to be deadly. As classes came to an end at the dance factory at 5.35, Rachel and her friends grabbed their things and began walking towards the tram station to head to their respective homes. Manny would remember that Rachel gave him a long, drawn-out goodbye hug, told him that she loved him, and stated that she would call him later that night when she got home. The image of Rachel walking away from him that day would remain forever ingrained in his memory. Instead of continuing with her usual routine, Rachel abruptly explained that she needed to catch a different train to meet up with someone. As she had already explained that she had a job that evening, her friends didn't question Rachel's sudden departure. Rachel's mother, Elizabeth, would remember the exact time that she looked up at the clock as she prepared dinner that night, wondering why at 6.15, Michael and Rachel were taking so long to come home. The two were usually extremely punctual and rarely arrived home after 6.15 on any given school night. It wasn't until 7.40 p.m. that Elizabeth was given an ounce of hope when the phone rang. She picked it up in a hurry and was extremely relieved to hear Michael's voice on the other end. However, the relief left Elizabeth as fast as it had entered when Michael explained that Rachel had never shown up at their regular meeting spot. Elizabeth and Michael were rightfully worried when they realized that neither of them had heard from Rachel since she was dropped off at the tram station that morning, especially considering that Rachel had been followed home once or twice by strange men in the past. More so than that, Rachel was afraid of the dark. Elizabeth immediately called the Box Hill Police Department to report Rachel missing. Much to the barber's dismay, the authorities had other ideas. A distressed Elizabeth and Michael were essentially told that all teens go through a phase where they rebel against their household. They run away to feel alive before returning home eventually. Hearing their plea to find their missing daughter, the police were certain that Rachel had simply gotten caught up with her friends and would come back home when she wanted to. Officers simply told Elizabeth and Michael to go about their evening and remain calm. There was no need for a massive search. It may be true that some teens run away, but Rachel had never been a rebellious teen. In fact, she was quite the opposite. The Barbers were a family that relied on open communication with each other, and Rachel had been able to confide in her parents whenever necessary. If something was going on, she would have let them know. Desperate to find their missing daughter, the Barbers decided to conduct their own search. They called Manny and asked him if Rachel had been with him, to which he said no. Realizing that Rachel could be in serious danger, he told them what Rachel had said on their lunch break. To the best of his ability, Manny informed the Barbers of Rachel's secretive plans for the evening, plans that they had no idea were in place. 
After calling around to the other members of Rachel's friend group, Michael and Elizabeth soon found out that Rachel had split off from the others on the way home and taken off in a different direction. With this new information, the Barbers returned to the Box Hill Police Station once more, and Elizabeth pleaded with the officers on duty to file a missing persons report. Yet again, the Barbers were denied any help from the police as they insisted Rachel was just another runaway case and would be a waste of their time and resources. The Barbers were forced to go home without any information about what may have happened to their beautiful and gifted daughter. The next morning, there was still no trace of Rachel anywhere. As the police department had been no help, the Barbers decided to continue the search for their daughter themselves. Elizabeth and Michael drove all over town, handing out flyers and asking anyone if they had seen Rachel. Manny had mentioned to them that Rachel had put a pair of shoes on hold at the shopping center near their academy, so the Barbers headed that way to investigate. The clerk at the shop remarked that Rachel had not come in to pick up the shoes she had so desperately wanted. It was starting to seem like she had vanished into thin air. Their worry deepened when another shop attendant told them a man had come to the shopping center a few weeks prior, attempting to recruit girls to come work for his completely legal brothel in Fitzroy. This man, as it had turned out, was a recently released prisoner. Terrified that their daughter could have ended up in such a place, Michael and Elizabeth called the brothel themselves to ask if anyone matching Rachel's description was working there. To their surprise, the people working at the brothel asserted that they never recruited people off the street, and they never hired underage girls to protect the legality of their establishment. Despite their obvious relief, the Barbers once again found themselves at a dead end. After receiving no help from the local law enforcement, the Richmond and Box Hill communities bound together to aid the Barbers in their search for Rachel. By the third day of Rachel's disappearance, the Box Hill Police Department found themselves collapsing under the community's mounting pressure as many people criticized their lack of concern for a missing young girl. Eventually, the authorities promised to help search for Rachel, stating that they would start by interviewing people from the dance factory. As it had turned out, those interviews never actually happened, and the police never explained why. However, they did end up interviewing Manny, as many missing person cases led to a guilty boyfriend having murdered their partner in a fit of jealous rage. When law enforcement realized that Manny had a solid alibi and could not have been a factor in Rachel's disappearance, they came to the conclusion that she really must have run away. Investigators assumed that Manny had gotten Rachel pregnant and she had subsequently run away because she had been too afraid to tell her parents. Over and over again, Manny asserted that there was no truth to the investigators' claims. The Barbers sided with Manny as they knew that Rachel could tell them anything without fear of anger or disappointment. Again, they felt that the investigation had come to a standstill. That is, until a crucial piece of information was brought to light. A family friend of the Barbers named Allison only learned of Rachel's recent disappearance on March 4th and reached out immediately. As it had turned out, Allison had seen Rachel on the day that she had gone missing. 
Allison recalled that Rachel and another girl had been at the East Richmond Railway Station waiting for the sixth tram. Allison had overheard the two girls chatting as teenage girls do about boys, school, and dance. Allison had even been on the sixth tram with them for a while and saw the two girls get off at the intersection of High Street and Williams Road. Police were able to confirm this sighting in reviewing the CCTV footage from the tram station. The investigators on Rachel's case released the information they had to the local news. The story of Rachel's sudden disappearance took off across the media, and Rachel's name was even added to Australia's most wanted list. For a moment, the entire country was hoping to find one missing teenage girl. With pressure from the entire country, the police department asked the barbers to come up with a list of all known acquaintances associated with the family. Over the course of the week since Rachel had gone missing, a variety of friends and family members had started calling the barber residents to express their condolences. One such family friend was an old neighbor of the barbers, Caroline Reed Robertson. Caroline and her family had lost touch with the barbers in recent years. In fact, the only reason Elizabeth and Michael had even remembered to put Caroline on their list of acquaintances of the family was that Caroline had called the barber house on March 7th around 9.15 p.m. to inquire about Rachel's disappearance. But this would prove crucial. The call had been short and sweet, not unlike any other calls the barbers had received regarding Rachel. After having pulled the barber's phone records for investigative purposes, the police were particularly interested in the calls made prior to Rachel's disappearance. As it had turned out, Caroline had apparently called the barber household on February 28th around 5.25 p.m. Not once, but twice. Even though the girls had not been in contact for years, both calls had lasted around 15 to 30 minutes, respectively. Police quickly informed the barbers that Caroline had been renting an apartment in the town near the location where Rachel had last been seen getting off the tram. The barbers were instantly relieved, assuming that perhaps the police were right and Rachel had run away to Caroline's. After all, Caroline had been Rachel's babysitter when she was younger. Police tracked down Caroline's workplace, an electronics shop nearby her apartment, and headed that way to interview her. However, upon arrival, the officers were surprised to find that Caroline had called out of work that day. They were even more surprised to find that Caroline had called out of work on the first of the month, the same day Rachel had gone missing. According to her manager, Caroline had shown up for work again on the second and then called out the rest of the week because she had come down with some kind of flu. Police interviewed Caroline's neighbors who recalled having awoken in the early hours of March 2nd to a person sobbing from the direction of Caroline's bedroom. No other information was given aside from the notion that the sobbing sounded similar to that of a furious tantrum held by a toddler. Police soon discovered that Caroline's father had come to visit her when he had found out that she had been sick. When being interviewed by police, Caroline's father recalled that the entire time he had been in his daughter's apartment, she had kept her bedroom door shut and locked. 
Caroline's co-workers informed the police that she had recently asked for some money from a few of the employees from the electronics shop. She apparently intended to have some furniture brought up to one of her dad's properties during the week and needed the cash to pay the moving company. Caroline could not drive, so she had hired someone to take her things for her. This turned out to be true. On March 4th, a driver arrived at Caroline's apartment and Caroline told him that she needed to move a statue. The statue had been pre-wrapped by Caroline in blankets and carpets and stuffed into a duffel bag for carrying. The duffel bag, along with some other pieces of furniture, were placed inside of the driver's truck and taken to Caroline's father's hobby farm in rural Kilmore. Around 9 a.m. on March 12th, investigators decided to pay a visit to Caroline's apartment, expecting to find a rebellious Rachel Barber hidden inside. When they arrived, however, there was no trace of anyone at all. Officers came back to the apartment around 5 o'clock p.m. to see if there had been any change. This time, when no one answered the door, the officers decided to let themselves in. The apartment was messy, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary initially. That is, until they opened the bedroom door to find Caroline face down on the carpet. At first, investigators thought she was dead as she was unresponsive. After checking her pulse, they realized that she was still alive, but appeared to have suffered a seizure. Caroline was immediately rushed to the hospital, but some of the officers decided to stick around and look for any trace of Rachel in her apartment. Investigators were not sure what they had expected to find, but they were surprised to discover a bag of size 8 clothes that were far too small for Caroline and various scribble-filled notebooks littering the tables and chairs of the apartment. At first glance, the notebooks appeared insignificant. However, after taking a closer look, it was clear that the notebooks were filled to the brim with copious notes and deeply personal information about none other than Rachel Barber. Among the seemingly endless handwritten biographies on her old neighbor were papers in Caroline's handwriting that indicated that she had planned on changing her name. More than that, she had plans to get plastic surgery and completely reconstruct her facial features. The notebooks also asserted that Caroline had been looking forward to moving to nearby Byron Bay in the near future. Caroline had been planning to start her life over as someone new. The legal paperwork to change her name held the final chilling clue for the officers. The name Caroline had chosen was none other than Rachel Barber. Investigators quickly rushed to the hospital to interrogate. When they arrived, they found that Caroline had regained consciousness from her epileptic fit. Law enforcement took the opportunity to ask Caroline some questions about Rachel in hopes that they could find a clue as to where she was. Officers were shocked when Caroline stated coldly, she's dead. Investigators quickly searched the land belonging to Caroline's father. During their search, they came across a shallow grave in a wooded area near a creek. It was inside this grave that officers found the lifeless body of 15-year-old Rachel Barber with a black telephone wire wrapped around her neck. She had been strangled to death. Caroline was later discharged and immediately taken into police custody. 
At her trial, it was noted that she had suffered years of emotional trauma, depression, extreme introverted personality, and had often pleaded with her parents to help her with her mental health. Pretty Rachel Barber diarized her deadly fantasies, then killed her in a jealous rage. Caroline Reed Robertson is eligible for release next year. I'm really fearful of this. I mean, I, I spoke to the victim's registrar and I said, I don't want Caroline to come looking for us. Reed Robertson was jailed for 20 years in 2000. Her innocent victim's parents have penned a letter of warning to the parole board, which will assess her in July and look at whether she should be released. After her arrest, she was diagnosed with a deeply entrenched personality disorder, which is usually a coping response to difficult and adverse situations. Caroline's journals over the years stated that she thought of herself as a troubled, tortured, lost soul thrown into an alien environment full of angels. Her journal also revealed her detailed plans to lure and kill Rachel Barber. On the way to dance school, say that she can't tell anyone that she's meeting me, as I'm not allowed to give the study results to anyone. Ethics, highly confidential. Not even your boyfriend or parent. Drug Rachel, toxic over mouth. Put body in army bag and disfigure, and dump somewhere way out. Court documents reveal that Caroline carried out this premeditated plan closely to how she described it. She had told Rachel that she had a quick and easy way for her to make $100 by participating in a psychology study, but that she wasn't allowed to tell anyone about it. Just as Caroline planned, Rachel had been true to her word. When Rachel arrived, Caroline drugged Rachel's pizza before placing the telephone cord around her neck and strangling her. Disturbingly, Caroline had kept Rachel's body in her closet for two whole days as she pretended to be ill, with the telephone cord still around her victim's neck before finally moving the body. For two days, Caroline had the reminder of her evil deed hidden in her closet. When her father had visited, Caroline refused to let him into her apartment, knowing that Rachel's body was right there, and he would find it. The movers had no idea that when they showed up to remove a statue from Caroline's apartment, they had actually carried out Rachel Barber's body. In court, it was revealed that Caroline has been obsessed with Rachel for years, as she had filled journals with details about Rachel and her life. In fact, Caroline had been jealous of Rachel's life since she used to babysit her as a child. As a beautiful dancer with a promising career, Caroline would watch how people flocked to spend time with Rachel, unable to help the growing resentment she had for the young girl who had been in her care. Caroline had been five years older than Rachel and never properly fit in with any of the Barber children or her own siblings as they grew up together. According to her journals, she had been severely bullied her entire life for her weight and looks and regarded herself as a misfit. In Caroline's eyes, Rachel had everything while she had nothing. So, Caroline killed Rachel in hopes that she could assume her identity and become her. This is why Caroline had chosen to legally change her name to Rachel Barber. By killing and taking her name, Caroline hoped it would mean she could finally become the person she had been jealous of for years. Caroline Reed Robertson was charged with the premeditated murder of Rachel Barber 
despite the fact that she claimed to have no recollection of the events while on trial. Caroline asserted that she had been in a daze at the time that she murdered Rachel. To her psychologist, Mr. Michael Crudson, who treated her while in prison, Caroline revealed that there had been a moment where she considered not killing Rachel. Just for a moment, the veil lifted and I didn't want to do it. But something said that I was in so much trouble now, I had to, and it was as though the veil had been dropped again. A year and a half after Rachel was murdered, Caroline was sentenced to 20 years in prison with the possibility of parole. Caroline allegedly never expressed any remorse for her crime. And in 2014, after serving 15 years of her 20-year sentence, Caroline's application for parole was actually approved. In January of 2015, the cold-blooded killer who murdered one of her childhood friends out of jealousy was released. Rachel's family has no real closure for their daughter's untimely demise. Rather, they worry about the safety of the individuals in any community that Caroline finds herself in. They will live knowing that Caroline may strike again and take another life at some point in the hopes of making her own life better. Perhaps most disturbingly, Caroline radically changed her appearance while in jail, losing weight and changing her hair in order to mimic Rachel. Seeing her, Rachel's own mother remarked that something in Caroline's eyes looked just like her deceased daughter. <laughs> 